0: Three feet per second, contact
1: down. Two, stop. Break. Throw. There we go. Auto. We're on the surface. Okay, we Uh (laughs) have. Okay, okay. 413 plus
0: 10,000. That was a
1: beautiful
0: one. Humans have landed on the moon six times. You've probably heard some of the comparisons of the computers from those landings in the 1960s and 70s to modern computers. For example, the device you're listening to this podcast on probably has about 100,000 times the processing power and millions of times more memory than the Apollo Guidance computer. We asked what questions you had about that computer and the programmers who created it. I'm your host, Eric O'Day, and my guest today on Pulsar is Don Isles, a software engineer who worked on the programming team for the Apollo computers. Don, great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. The first question I have for you is one we got on social media. How long did it take to create the programs that guided the Apollo spacecraft?
1: Well, I was hired in July of 1966 and assigned to that part of the mission, and we landed on the moon in July of 1969. So one answer would be three years. And you did this programming right here in Cambridge at Draper Labs? At that time, it was the MIT Instrumentation Lab, which later got spun off and became Draper. It's really the same organization having evolved. We were in a nondescript building at 75 Cambridge Parkway facing the Charles River.
0: Now we often hear about how computers in the 1960s took up entire rooms, but obviously those wouldn't fit on the lunar module. So just how small did the computer have to be?
1: Yes, there were a lot of room-sized computers in those days. The Apollo guidance computer was one cubic foot. It was about six inches by one foot by two feet.
0: Well, that's pretty tiny. What did that mean for you as you were programming the landing code?
1: To us, it was more a question of the capability, which by today's standards was rather small. but had room for something like 30,000 lines of code, for example, and was slow by modern standards. And it was probably fair to say that it was costly to program because you did have to carefully massage everything and make it fit together. But in some ways, it's an advantage to have a small computer. A listing of the entire program would fit in one book, a very big book, but it was one book. So you knew everything was there. And since in those days, we didn't have the modern monitors, that book was what we stared at when we were thinking about the code.
0: So no screens in front of you during the mission. You literally had a book with all of the code in it that you'd physically flip through as the mission progressed.
1: Yep. And of course, the book had chapters, you know, it was organized. So it wasn't a total, you know, mishmash. But yes,
0: we got a question from Taylor. What was the biggest challenge that you faced? So was it the limited capability of the computer because of its size?
1: Yes, that was the biggest challenge. Within that, One of the major challenges was our amount of read-write memory, what we called erasable memory, was extremely limited. And so there had to be time sharing of that memory. So you had to make sure that two things that could be operating at the same time weren't using the same place in memory. And that could be quite a puzzle. There were spots in the memory that were actually assigned six different times, six deep, And so that all had to be kept track of. That was one of the main challenges.
0: We also had a few people
1: ask about testing
0: the program. How did you simulate the conditions of a moon landing in order to make sure the software would work properly?
1: Well, we did do run-throughs in our lab on Earth. It was all inside the computer, of course. There was our program that operated the onboard computer, but that was connected to another much bigger program that simulated the environment that was around us. If we sent out an impulse to a a maneuvering jet, let us say, that program, which we call the environment, would compute the reaction and feed that back to us. And we had other ways that we could run uh, landings, too. We had a man-in-the-loop simulator also.
0: So was it a simulator in terms of just a series of computers, or did you go inside one of those mock-ups of the actual spacecraft?
1: Well, we had both. The one I first described was all software, but we also had something we call the hybrid. We called it that because it connected digital and analog computers in order to keep up with real time, something that a digital computer in those days couldn't do by itself. We did have a cockpit. We did not have a very good visual display in Cambridge. However, NASA had some wonderful simulators that we could even use sometimes for software development that did have visual displays. These were the ones the astronauts used for training. Now, you also
0: had to do some quick programming for the moon landing. In particular, on the third landing attempt, Apollo 14, you wrote some code to bypass a faulty switch as the mission happened. Can you tell us about that?
1: With several hours to go before the landing was to begin, one of the switches in the cockpit started sending a spurious signal to the computer. And that was the same signal that during the actual landing maneuver, when the engine was firing, would have caused an abort. So somehow or other, we had to isolate that spurious signal so that it wouldn't interfere with the landing. So I uh, looked at the code and came up with a method of preventing the software from actually looking at that switch and reacting to the bad signal. So if the astronauts
0: actually did need to abort, would that button still have worked?
1: Yes, it would have taken, instead of the single push of a button, it would have taken a little more activity for them to go to the abort, but it was still there.
0: Was this the kind of thing that tended to happen frequently on these landings, or was that the only thing that went wrong with Apollo 14?
1: <laughs> well, it was certainly not the only thing that ever went wrong. It was a simple switch contamination problem. It was the sort of problem that could happen anywhere. A bad mechanical component, such as a switch, is a very common way for any machine to fail. Of course, it was worse in the space environment of zero gravity, because if there was a piece of metal, let us say, in that switch, that could be drifting around randomly. And so it became a more acute problem. But that switch was looked at after the mission. In fact, there was contamination in it, as we knew from the way it had behaved.
0: So, just one out of a million things that could have gone wrong. And luckily, it was something where you could just write a couple quick lines of code and send it up to the lunar module, and they were still able to land.
1: Well, yes. I mean, it was a very crucial switch, shall we say. It was a switch that, if that contamination had closed the circuit, it would have ruined a mission. It would have resulted in a mission failure. There were not so many switches that could have that result.
0: Can you tell us about your career after the Apollo program and what else you
1: worked on? Well, I continued to work almost entirely under NASA sponsorship. Following Apollo, we started thinking about the space shuttle, and we looked into what the best way of sort of organizing, shall we say, the activity inside the shuttle computers. So we worked on that for a while. We built a simulator called the On-Orbit Flight Simulator in software once more. That gave us a fairly lightweight way of simulating different space shuttle maneuvers and i suppose building simulations is sort of how you could sum up the next fairly long period along the way i developed a sequencing system again another piece of software but a sequencing system that was built around a language that was expressed in terms of temporal concepts like when whenever before called timeliner and we use that as a simulation tool but in the early 90s, we saw that it was needed on board the International Space Station that was taking shape at that point, and we convinced NASA of that. And so the final phase of my time working on spaceflight was adapting that system for use on the International Space Station. So you could say the most exciting periods for me were at the beginning and the end of the 32 years I worked on spaceflight.
0: And that code, is it still used today on the International Space Station? Yes, it is. And to finish, do you have any advice for the engineers of today who are working on sending humans back to the moon and coding programs to do the same tasks that yours did over 50 years ago?
1: That one's easy. Never overlook a clue. And you can see so many instances in the past. Think of the Hubble mirror. There were uh, clues that that mirror wasn't figured right, but they were explained away. No one quite got to the bottom of it. And theirs was a very costly mistake because clues were not he did.
0: And if our listeners would like to hear more of your stories about working on engineering the Apollo program, they can because you wrote them down and published them in a memoir.
1: I did, and in my mind it was something that was maybe almost as important as what I did on Apollo was to tell the story because I was there in the middle of a particular part of it that was very interesting, but I did in fact create my memoir Sunburst and Luminary an Apollo memoir. All right,
0: well, Don, thanks so much for sharing with us your experiences in the Apollo program and beyond. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. You can hear more about the feats of engineering that made the Apollo program possible by visiting our To the Moon exhibit in the blue wing of the Museum of Science or by catching an Ask a Scientist live stream on MOS at Home.
1: Until next time, keep asking questions.